This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. The comparisons are bleak. The predictions dark. The economy set to plunge into a decline of historic proportions. New COVID outbreaks in China have forced 65 million people back into lockdown. Authorities are reinforcing Beijing's zero COVID policy, and this requires partial or full. I've said before, Mr. Deputy Speaker, no return to boom and bust. We will not return to the old boom and bust. Hi folks, David Jameson here, editor of Conta.scot, and I'm with Gregor Clooney of the Conta Editorial Board for our new podcast dedicated to political economy uh, in these fast-changing times. Gregor, what's this podcast for and and what kind of themes is it going to explore? Hi, David, and welcome to everyone uh, listening to Contra Capital for the first time. So, yeah, as as you said, we're going to look at uh, political economy. We're going to try and uh, demystify uh, some of the processes which are going on uh, within the global capitalist economy, which uh, shapes our lives for better or or for worse. Um, And obviously, you know, the period of the last 15 years in particular has seen multiple overlapping and intersecting crises um, in in the economy, which have turned people's lives upside down. So I suppose from a broadly Marxist, heterodox economic uh, perspective, it'd be good just to try and together shed some light um, on some of these processes, some of these crises. um, And it would be great, yeah, both to talk to yourself, but to get other uh, well-informed guests on as well. Um, and, and we can try and process some of these wild things which are happening um, in our world. Political economy is something you've really not been able to escape in uh, recent years. So it's become something, I mean, I remember before 2008, the economy was something that was discussed apolitically, really. And I suppose that's something that lasted from about the you know the decline and fall of the Soviet Union to up to that point which was that an attitude came to dominate that economics was sort of like the weather, right? In fact, it was the period in which the concept of political economy, that which is the idea that economics is fundamentally about relationships between social classes, between employers and employees, buyers and sellers, states, you know, the, the idea that there's not a, a fundamental distinction between the things we call economics and everything else, that was really eclipsed by the concept of just economics, that the economy was a distinctive sphere without fundamental relationships, that it was almost had a kind of magical property, like I say, that it was like the weather. It was like air pressure. You know, uh, today stocks were doing well, tomorrow they're doing badly. Uh, Today the dollar is up, tomorrow it's down. These are disembodied, kind of alienated forces moving around in the ether. And all that remained for human beings to do was to understand the kind of tidal magic uh, of the marketplace. Um, I mean, I remember those times. I'd be interested to hear if you did. But that started to come to a, a close with 2008 when it was understood 
that there were real human institutions guiding these supposedly disembodied forces. Uh, absolutely, and I think that is a key component of, of that period beginning in the 90s, which, you know, there was this kind of celebratory moment where there was this ostensible end of history. Um, and, and what you had was the, the triumph of liberal democracy over other forms of uh, government and, and governance and an end to a great kind of ideological conflict and, and struggle over the nature of um, our economy and our, our society. Uh, and a key component of that liberal consensus um, was this bifurcation, this separation of economics and politics. Um, and, and this rephrasing of the nature of the political instance. So what politics was about uh, ceased to be the contestation of wealth and power, um, the organisation of production and the distribution of our social wealth. It became about protecting um, a market system which was already prefigured, which was self-reproducing and which held um, all of the secrets to our um, collective prosperity in, in its own domain. Um, and I do think that is, uh, you know, it was obviously a very short-lived moment and it certainly came crashing down um, fully in, in 2008. Um I, I suppose. So, yeah, I, I do think political economy is an essential discipline. It's an essential apparatus because it connects these questions. It connects questions of wealth, of um, the the way in which we produce and, and distribute uh, goods in our society with questions of political power. It reveals their fundamental um, in, intertwinement. Um, and I do think that the kind of metaphors that, that you're raising there in terms of natural science and the weather and, and, and so on are, are apt with the way that um, mainstream ideology likes to present um, economics. But um, even uh, in and of themselves, those are, um, are insufficient because when we look at the physical world, you could be forgiven uh, for thinking um, without the scientific method that we live, um, that the Earth is flat, um, or that the Earth is the centre of the universe and the sun revolves around our own planet and, and so on. It's, it's actually only with the scientific method, with critical conceptual thinking, uh, with critical interrogation of data, that you can reveal the real moving forces of uh, general relativity, of uh, the universe, and the same is true of um, of the economic uh, world. Uh, you need to apply critical thought and a critical perspective um, to get to the root of it. It's not something which can be simply observed from afar. And that's what, uh, I suppose that's what we're going to try and do here, bring a, a critical lens to all these developments because I think for most people, uh, this is a world which remains completely obscure for most of their lives. You know what I mean? I mean, beyond the absolute basics, your average person, and this this goes, I'll say, I mean, you're somewhat more uh, knowledgeable about political economy than I am. Uh, even for me, you know, um, the business news can be quite alienating. It's a storm of 
uh, of figures. And do you know what I mean? It's it, We're talking about forces that are so massive and so diverse and so intricate that that in itself can make it seem completely overwhelming. And most people just shut off as soon as they hear about any of it. Um, but, you know, from that mass of information, you can understand broad tendencies uh, in the system. You, they can be made sense of and used to discuss the world in a, in a political way and about it, the social consequences of these processes and not just a, a bunch of kind of dry abstracts uh, facts and, and, and figures. Um, one figure to, to move us on to today's subject uh, that has been bandied around is, I believe, 130 billion, uh, which uh, is a meaningless uh, number to most people, 130 billion, myself included. Uh, it's difficult for me to maintain in my head the extreme difference between a million and a billion. Um, but 130 billion is the initial offer from uh, Liz Truss, the new prime minister in Britain, uh, for the state's intervention into the economy. Uh, now, we were going to get full details uh, of that uh, project before the death of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, and, of course, the entire British state uh, has kind of seized up uh, for a kind of um, huge national display of national unity and so on. Um, so we don't know the outlines of that, but we do know uh, that this is a general phenomenon. Just in Britain, this is the third major wave since 2008 of huge state resources being funneled into the corporate superstructure of, of British capitalism. And that's also a world process. Uh, it's, it's the entire global statal system. The entire global state system is, uh, is throwing resources, particularly the United States, of course, which has the most to chuck. Uh, into stabilising the global economic order. How should we understand this turn? Is it a turn? Let's get that down first. Is what's happened since 2008, you know, the financial crisis bailout, the pandemic and lockdown bailout regime, and now this third huge intervention, uh, is this new? Hasn't capitalism always done this as a last resort? Yeah, I think... It's a crucial question, um, and I think to start off with, we have to say that very ideological conceptions of the operation of the market economy as a self-propelled system, which requires uh, for its efficiency no state intervention, um, or no state intervention beyond that of the you know the so-called night watchman state that protects private property and. Uh, lubricates market exchange and so on. Um, you know, I, I think those ideas are for the birds, uh, clearly. Uh, we've seen over the past 15 years, as you say, a succession of major structural state interventions in our economy. And the character of those has been fundamentally to protect um, the existing asset price and commodity price structure. So, you know, the, the values of uh, the shares which have uh, floated um, on the stock market, the prices of commodities which are traded in uh, markets, it's operated to protect 
the existing balance of wealth um, and income in our society. Um, and it's protected private initiative um, over the economy. So we um, have spent a huge amount of public money, um, which um, disproportionately represents socialised wages. So <clears throat> one of the key dynamics of this so-called neoliberal period ushered in by uh, Reagan and Thatcher um, was a transformation in the nature of the tax base. So a tax revolt from the elite, from the wealthy, and an increasing tax burden upon labour. So when we talk about the state doing anything, it's disproportionately powered by your wages. And if we think about wages as separated into take-home wages or private wages and taxed wages or socialised wages, it's mobilising the latter to prop up um, the economy to try and massage or paper over certain contradictions. Um, and, and for me, what has changed is that um, prior to 2008-2009, the, the contradictions of global economic development were fundamentally uh, displaced by um, the symbiotic relationship between East Asia centered on China and uh, Western consumer markets centered on the US. Um, and what you had is a, recy a recycling of surpluses in the global economy through Anglo-American financial markets, which then uh, propped up consumer debt in the West, um, in the US and the UK, um, and, and in Europe, allowed us as consumers to continue spending beyond our means effectively as our real wages were declining and our competitive position in the global economy uh, was on, uh, on the slide. That all came to a head um, in 2008 um, with the, the collapse of, of the housing bubble. And that type of uh, spending, uh, which departed from the creation of real value in the economy uh, was was really problematized. So the since then, um, the you know capital firms have found new ways to try and extract uh, value uh, from from the system, um, and this is increasingly taking the form um, of a, a massive transfer of wealth uh, via the state via via the the utilisation of those socialised wages to prop up profits. Let's um, let's investigate that really those relationships you've discussed there because these are quite crucial. We're talking about what's referred to as financialization. Um, so so go in go a bit deeper go a bit closer to these these kind of relationships. So in the West, there's stagnating wages. There's an increase in the supply of credit. You know, loans of various sorts uh, to the population that's being used to buy up uh, produce. Some of it, of course, as you say, from um, production in in Asia. You said real value there. I mean, in what what makes certain forms of uh, you know financial products and commodities and transactions not not real in the sense you often hear people making a separation of the real economy from parts of the sort of financialized economy. Yeah, so, and it, it's really important to 
emphasize here that in terms of Marx's political economy, there, there is this distinction between productive and unproductive labor, productive or unproductive economic activity. And that's not a, um, a moral value judgment. It's a, a technical question around what produces surplus value uh, for capital. Um, in the type of capitalist economy in, in which we uh, in which we live. Um, so things like uh, you know caring for uh, the elderly, uh, things like uh, educating uh, young people are not traditionally seen within um, Marx's political economy as being productive activities. they're they're actually, they involve an expenditure of value produced elsewhere. Um, and this gets almost gets to the to the heart of um the alienation um and, and the kind of contradiction of capitalist economy is that the very things which are most important in our uh society and most valuable in terms of um you know human life become incidental or become a, a burden. Uh, for our economy and for our society. Um, other sectors which, you know, can be considered to be unproductive in and of themselves um, and include finance. So if you look at, um, you know, finance capital, so to um, foreign industrial capital for um, a productive firm, to continue to operate, to expand its activity, um, it requires a, a flow of credit. Um, and that credit is essential for the running of the, of the business, of the enterprise, um, but that cost in and of itself does not contribute to the production of new goods, of new, you know, what's called in, uh, in the parlance, uh, use values. So anything that is... Um, a, a good which is um, which is valuable to human society is, is a use value, um, and those costs don't uh, directly um, contribute to the production of um, of, of use values. Um, so, so what you what you've got in in Western economies in general is a an expansion of these um, incidental activities. Uh, which themselves don't directly create wealth for society, um, but which, you know, looking at the global economy, they actually involve an extraction of value produced elsewhere, produced in more productive regions or in more productive sectors um, of, of the economy. Um, and in our society, they, they operate to redistribute wealth um, from direct producers to the owners of, of, of assets. And you can see that right across our economy. This is what people mean when they talk about a rentier economy. Um, mm -hmm. It's an economy dominated by the owners of assets who use uh, their invested capital value to strip, to strip out wealth um, from, from working people and from productive sectors. What, what sorts of assets are they? One of the uh, key characteristics of the neoliberal period, um, especially in um, 
the more financialized economies, those which have seen the greatest amount of financial deregulation, so the Anglo-American economies, you've seen a massive house price inflation. So about a thousand percent increase um, on average um, in, in house prices and in corresponding rent prices uh, since the kind of the, the mid to late 80s. And what this effectively represents is the confiscation of wages by finance capital. So you go to work, you work your 35, 38, 50 hour week, however many jobs you work, you work damn hard. And then you have to hand over at the end of that week an increasing proportion of your wages to a landlord class whose only contribution uh, to the economy is is you know that status of previously having accumulated wealth and having used that wealth to to buy up um to buy up property which of course is in in short supply um and this is something which has been deliberately constructed by the state um under the dominance of finance capital so the state has operated to reduce supply of affordable housing so uh, you've seen a a retrenchment, a re reduction in the production of um, social housing, uh, affordable uh, publicly owned housing. You have seen the deliberate selling off of uh, formerly public um, housing stock. And then you've seen, so that um, has decreased supply um, of affordable housing. The state has also then acted to um, increase effective demand through deregulating the mortgage lending market. So um, mortgage lenders, from being in a position where mortgages were lent on the basis of one income and at a certain ratio of house price to that income, they, are, they now um, lend um, on the basis of, you know, two incomes and, you know, they they will give you a mortgage of of four times your your combined income. So you've they've increased effective demand, um, and 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 thereby inflated the market. And that's before you even start to talk about you know things like help to buy uh, and other government um, initiatives. And and what this has done is effectively transferred just an absolutely gigantic amount of wealth to finance capital. Uh, from all other sectors of of the economy, and this is a disastrous thing. Um, if you want to think about other developmental paths, other ways to to grow our economy and develop our society, because those costs appear as pounds and pounds and pence on exports, you know, on manufactured goods produced in. Britain is a, is a huge cost for productive capital, so it, it also destroys jobs. So there's obviously a link between the development of this kind of financialized rentier economy and the decline of Britain's sort of sometimes called traditional industries, but kind of manufacturing, industrial uh, activities, and so on. But how does this? How do these changes relate to um, bailouts? Why is it the case that um, the economy now requires, you talked about some of the changes that have occurred in the state as a result of these changes in uh, the kind of economic model of, in this case, you know, like British capitalism. Uh, 
how has that affected? Why has the state basically turned into a piggy bank that like bankers and Amazon chiefs and so often and so on sort of smash every five or six years <laughs> and uh, and just help themselves to the coffers? Like, how have we ended up with the state taking a very specific role in that in that kind of these vast bailouts? Yeah, so I think that that's an absolutely crucial question. Um, and for me, there's a, a kind of vicious cycle here. Um, there was, you know, and if we go back into economic and political history, you know, throughout, you know, the, the history of the British state, there have been these kind of key uh, decision points, these key moments where different trajectories could could have been taken, different paths could have been embarked upon. Um, and I think the the Thatcher period was was a key one of those. So the British economy uh, since the you know mid-century and the end of the Second World War, um there had been uh you know this is the the so-called golden period of um of capitalist development where um the destruction of capital values um and you know the um destruction of national infrastructures in Europe created these huge opportunities for um economic activity to 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 kind of uh, to to reproduce almost civilization and um in a in a continent devastated by war and, and that fueled uh you know full employment and um high levels of productivity into the mid to late 60s but from the late 60s early 70s onwards um with the entry into um consumer goods markets of uh, Japanese capital, of uh, German capital, um, and then later of East Asian and, and Chinese capital, what you had was a um, a crisis of overcapacity, of, of overproduction, uh, which started to, to hit profits. And Britain was a real uh, loser in that competitive uh, dynamic. Um, Britain's firms were too small. Um, it's you know, productive techniques were too old-fashioned. Uh, they were too labor-intensive. Uh, they hadn't started to apply computer technology and um, you know information technology in as efficient a way as um, its competitors had, and it really started to lose to lose ground. And there were a couple of there were a couple of options for the British state at that time, either to double down on um industrial investment to modernize the economy um and like, like germany like germany did just as an example of of someone who actually did that a country that actually did that yeah absolutely or actually to retreat um from uh, global commodity markets to cease to attempt to compete in those markets and instead to rest upon its kind of inherited capacities as uh, the originator of global capitalism, of the the first uh, global, uh, um, first kind of global capitalist power, um, and that, and to fulfil this more kind of rarefied parasitical role of of extracting financial rents in, in the global economy, and this was this was that you know this latter path was obviously the the one which they went down. Um, 
But that what this creates is a kind of, you know, what is called uh, a path dependency, uh, which means that decisions which you've taken shape the context of your future decisions in a way where it, it starts to get hard to go back or to, to change direction. Um, and the state really doubled down on uh, finance capital on the city of London, uh, adopted a policy around the sterling, around the pound, which favoured uh, financial accumulation. So it was all about maintaining a strong pound that would attract inward financial investment. It was about controlling inflation because um, inflation just cuts directly into financial um into um financial profits um and then what you got was a a fairly brazen dismantling of state supports for industry um but of course this meant that you know in, industrial revenues continued to fall financial revenues continued to rise in a sustained way and finance capital became the dominant political fraction uh within the british state it became uh, the motor force of the British economy. The city of London became the heads to which um, government went for advice. And th this kind of became locked in as, as a developmental model with quite disastrous consequences for the broad base of the economy. I mean, um, traditionally, you can see this throughout history, is that regimes and world powers which cease to be productive in, in a manufacturing or industrial sense and, and escape into the world of, of, of high finance, they lose dramatically the broad base of social wealth because you don't need as many people to run um, an investment bank as you do to run a, um, you know, a, a massive industrial complex. So you've got structural unemployment, you've got um, the development of a, a low wage economy outside of city of London and, and the southeast and you know this kind of social immiseration so um I'm just going to read a, a quote here which I think kind of sums up how this situation of uh financialization apart from as as we've discussed you know kind of making the economy really lopsided destroying lots of traditional industries but and also transforming the functions of the state, how this results in this sort of peculiar um, bailout regime. Um, this is Perry Anderson discussing an economist called uh, Cedric Durand, who's a, a sort of French Marxist economist. Um, and I find this really fascinating. He's talking about the development of uh, new financial instruments. So uh, these include things like contract swaps, strokes, you know, uh, structured products and option contracts, uh, all these kinds of financial products, some of which you may have heard of, remember from the 2008 crisis, uh, or uh, heard about through films like The Big Short, which uh, is a good film, I think, good at kind of popularising an understanding of, uh, of what, uh, of the kind of uh, the proximate causes, as it were, the immediate causes of the financial crisis in 2008, though not perhaps... The deeper causes, but he makes he makes this point drawing on Duran from the uh, from the uh, the recent financial crisis. By two thousand and seven, the total notional value of derivatives was some ten times that of global GDP. By twenty thirteen, the value of purely financial transactions 
outclassed those of trade and investment combined 100 to 1. That such an inverted pyramid should in one way or another topple into crises is no surprise, each time requiring central banks to act as unlimited lender of last resort and governments to, to sustain demand by letting deficits soar to save the system. The crash of 2008 being the latest and most spectacular case to date. Though since then, of course, we've seen rounds of this because each crisis, whether that's a financial crisis or a lockdown or um, you know the present problems in the global economy, threatens this massive balloon of fictitious capital, which is just <laughs> looming over real uh, kind of economic developments like some huge ominous god. <laughs> but I mean, this is just the stark irrationality of the global capitalist system today, that it can be crushed by the sheer weight of financial derivatives, so complex and sprawling. Uh, and so huge that they're considered more valuable than all of the potentially socially useful economic activity. Uh, and so so complex, as I say, that they can't really be traced. People were shocked to find that banks were holding debts which contained sub-debts, which were totally rotten and useless. They were things like lending to people. This is in 2008, of course. Uh, you know, lending to people so they could buy houses. Uh, and they had nowhere near the economic wherewithal to keep up with the repayments uh, on these on these houses. Those bad debts were packaged together with good debts and sold as though somehow the good debts nullified the bad ones, uh, just sold into the, this bloated financial system. And that famously is how we got the 2008 crisis. But like I say, that bubble, that huge inflation of ridiculous financial uh, transactions is always threatening to collapse and just swamp real economic activity. Absolutely. And I, I do think in terms of complexity, um, well, there's a few things to say. Um, I think sometimes complexity, you know, is mistaken. Um, and what really is going on is is opaqueness. Um, in a way, I do think we have to ask whether the fundamental social relations have become more uh, complex or if just the machinery of expropriation, the machinery of um, wealth extraction has, has simply become more opaque and, and, and more mediated. For, for me, there are a few different processes which this financial system is trying to, to straddle and, and to, to handle. The, the first is this huge world historic shift in the center of gravity of industrial production from the west from the traditional capitalist heartland to east asia uh, centered on china and that migration of uh, productive capacity of productive activity goes hand in hand with financialization and the multiplication of financial flows and, and monetary flows in the global economy, because that wealth has to somehow come back to the West, has to come back to Western capital and continue to be realized as, as profit. So offshoring on the one hand, uh, the, the other side of the same coin is, are these financial flows back into um, Western financial markets uh, centered on London and, and uh, New York. 
Another key component of this is that in the West, we suddenly have economies which have been deindustrialized, which cease to be the center of value production in the global economy. But you get this overhang from capital's perspectives of historically high wages. So those were tolerable to the extent that industry was productive in you know, in the UK economy, for instance, um, and those, you know, wages were an affordable concession. They cease to be that now for capital. It doesn't make sense for capital to continue to pay high wages in the West when um, value is, uh, value production is, is, is moving abroad. So what, what they're doing is through the inflation of house prices, through the inflation of rents which are extracted from um, our energy distribution, uh, from our utilities, from our transport, is confiscating those wages which were previously won uh, by you know trade union organization, working class organizations. So you continue to nominally have high wages, but increasingly you have to pay those directly back out to capital through your energy bill, through your you know, ludicrously priced um, rail transport um, through your massively inflated uh, mortgage repayments um, and so on. So it's a confiscation of those historically won gains. Yeah, so let's let's talk about those kind of costs to working class people because obviously we're now facing runaway inflation Last time I checked, I could be wrong about this, it's running at about 12%, which is obviously the highest that you or I remember in our lifetimes. And that's for a reason. Earlier on, you said that uh, one of the features of this phase of economic development, call it neoliberalism, what you will, uh, is a low inflation, particularly in kind of our corners, little financialized corners of, of the world economy. Um, so why see that? I mean, that breaking down now does that signal a, a fundamental shift away from this the, the neoliberal economic model? Does it imply that that's reached some kind of natural limits? Um, uh, are we now transitioning toward? I mean, is can we expect our financialized uh, economy to become more dysfunctional because of that? Yes, I, I think so. And what we have here is a, a culmination of factors. Um, and I, I would really urge listeners to read George Caravan's recent um, article um, on Contra.Scott about the new inflation. Um, and I think he tackles that really powerfully using some, some Marxist political economic tools. And there's several key drivers here. The increased arms production and arms spending, which has accompanied the Ukraine war, um, is driving inflation. You can think of that uh, simply as a, a, a massive increase in demand uh, for um, raw materials, uh, for manufactured goods. You can also, there are obviously um, also some um, supply shocks uh, which have resulted from the, the war in Ukraine, Ukraine being a, a massive um, exporter of, of cereals and, and other foodstuffs. And the sanctions regime 
um, obviously having an impact upon the supply of uh, raw materials and oil and gas from from Russia as well. Um, those material supply problems have been um, blown up and amplified by the behaviour of market actors in response thereto. So, you know, in a marketplace dominated by um, international conglomerates with huge buying power, you know, supply in key markets has been dominated, have been speculatively bought up uh, by conglomerates, which then creates, uh, multiplies and spreads out through time uh, the, the implications of, um, of, of these supply shocks. We also saw that with COVID and its, and its impact on, on global supply chains. There was a structural damage done to global capacity by the pandemic as demand both fell off a cliff momentarily. Huge supp supply problems were produced by uh, down and, and other forms of um, intervention in, in labor markets. Um, and, and those have the the consequences of those have kind of spilled out um, through time again as you know market actors have speculatively bought up supply. So you know semiconductors, uh, microprocessor chips, printed circuit boards, um, these are markets which have been affected by by uh, a kind of momentary supply problem, but then amplified through time through the uh, competitive behavior of 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 multinationals. And yeah, in George's analysis in particular, I think an important um aspect is capital seizing upon um these moments to raise prices um and in search for you know additional profits and you know something which has kept western capitalism going in in uh, recent decades are the super profits which have been extracted by big tech by you know apple microsoft google um through their competitive control over intellectual property and patents they've been able to be extremely profitable um but the markets for tablets for laptop computers for mobile phones um have reached a, or are reaching a saturation point so increasing rent seeking through what's called price gouging so um where you control a market for a particular good or where it's a, a even if it's a natural monopoly such as um an energy distribution you seize this opportunity to raise your prices above costs and because there are other sectors that can't do similarly and um, because of competition you you effectively appropriate profit from there as well um as well as as we've been discussing um from wages through the confiscation of wages yeah, I mean, what I think is really good about George's article, which explains this stuff um, really well, is once again, uh, inflation is the product of relationships. You know what I mean? It's, it's the relationships uh, between different bits of the capitalist system, different groups of employers and investors. So, like, he talks about a distinction traditionally made between Department 1 and Department 2, um, which are just sort of different bits of the capitalist system that supply things to each other. So, for example, the raw materials that would produce a car are given to 
the car producers. There's a relationship there between those two different types of capitalists. And they are trying to always get one over on each other. And inflation is something which is often caused when they're inflating prices uh, of the goods they're trading about to try and get you know, one up on, on their competitors. But underpinning that, of course, there's the relationship all the types of capitalists have to the workers they are both exploiting and selling the goods to, the final products to. Uh, and unless they can do both of those things, they can't make their profits. So it's a classic example of how this inflation we're all experiencing now, and which is driving people into, in some cases, desperate situations, uh, is a direct product of the differences in interest between different class groups, both within the capitalist class and between capitalists and workers. Uh, so again, we've kind of come full circle to how we started, which is all of this stuff is about these class relationships. All of this stuff can be related, you know, through various different levels of uh, complexity and so on, but all of it can come down to the competitive differences between different actors in the, uh, in the, uh, in the, in the economy. So I think that's maybe a good place to stop for this week. Um, but obviously this is, you know, these, some of these themes are going to be returned to again and again as we look at different aspects uh, of modern capitalism. Uh, and I, I think, I mean, today we've been rooted in kind of these immediate developments, but we also want to talk about how this has changed, like ideology, how we perceive ourselves, uh, how people work, how people respond to economic changes. Uh, so, yeah, any final thoughts? Yeah, I, th I think that those are themes which we will return to as, as a, a class analysis, an analysis based on social relationships um, and a way of, of understanding our economy on that basis. And hopefully we'll be able to cut through, as you mentioned earlier, some of these mystificatory ideological discourses around um, the economy, which, which you know, presents it in a highly stylized, a highly abstract way, which which disguises what's going on socially uh, in terms of, of our um, economy. But, you know, there are, there's very simple ways to look at this. I mean, think about, you know, profit um, and wages um, as being shares of the social product. So you obviously have a, a basic class antagonism about the relative weight of wages versus profits. But you similarly have a, a battle between capitals over the relative prices of different outputs. And those might be um, outputs from, as you say, department one. So producer goods, things which are required to make consumer goods, department two, which are those consumer goods themselves. So if you think about your both your your take home wages and the tax base. Where's that being spent, um, and who has an interest in it being spent on what and at what price? And I suppose I think about rent seeking in, in the domestic economy through uh, the inflation of prices for utilities, for transport, for housing. 
So it's a way for domestic British capital to reclaim higher proportions of your wages. From their perspective, why would you why would they want you to spend the money which you are <laughs> which you have in your bank account, however fleetingly, on exports from Germany or exports from China, unless they have some ownership over the production of those those goods. Much better for them to to siphon off your wages um, through inflating the cost of the basic things that you need to survive. Um, your house, the energy to heat your house, your you know bus or train to work, um, and so on. So we can start to think about it in terms of competitive relations between classes and between groups within classes, what are called fractions, uh, class fractions, um, over prices, um, over costs, and yeah, effectively over slices of the the social product, if that makes sense. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascot. Thanks so much for tuning in to this uh, first episode of Contra Capital. We're hoping over the coming weeks to discuss some of the key um, economic questions which shape our lives. We're going to have a range of exciting and knowledgeable guests onto the podcast. And we hope that this brings something enriching together with a range of other content which Contra is producing um, under our newly relaunched Contra radio service.